I'm just going to tell you right up front that when I saw the lectionary lessons for today, I was not excited about preaching. Oh, how I wish I had given this sermon to Father James or <laughs> left it for Bishop Men's next week or some other person. But we are a people in our tradition who, who really respects the lectionary. We respect, we sit under the authority of Holy Scripture. We believe it is all profitable for, for our righteousness. And so we trust it. And even when, when the le- lessons come up and they are difficult ones, we, we, with fear and trembling, we try to move forward. Um, let me just say that, that I believe the reason the Lord wants to bring this scripture to us and have us focus on this hard passage of Mark 10, 1 through 12, is because we are living in a time, as my friend Jay Haig in, in Jacksonville says, we're living in a sexual tsunami right now. I mean, isn't that a great expression for it? I mean, it's everywhere. It is inundating us in every aspect of our lives. Government, entertainment, even within the church, we're being ripped apart with sexual scandals and cases of sexual harassment and misconduct, and sex is everywhere. Now you begin to see the PG-13 aspect of the sermon that I alluded to earlier. And yet, Jesus um, wants us to, to, to understand a higher definition, purpose, vision of sexuality, higher than we, we can really hardly imagine. And the reason why I think that this congregation is, in, is called to, to examine this is because we live and move in this area, and we have influence over people. And our attitudes about sex are easily distorted by the culture in one of two ways, and I'll talk about that in a second. But I want to remind you of what Jesus preaches, what the Apostle Paul teaches, and what Genesis writes about to reflect on this. So let's just dig in. Let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. So, well, you see Jesus is set up. The, the Pharisees come and they want to catch Jesus. They want to find a way to scrutinize over his testimony and decide whether or not he's innocent or guilty. And so they, they bring this question of divorce to him. And Jesus immediately takes them to the law, to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament law, we see that God put in the heart of, of Moses to allow for divorce. Sometimes we think that divorce is a modern thing. It's not a modern thing at all. It's an ancient thing. It's found in the law. It's found in the Old Testament. We know that, that Moses allowed divorce, and so Jesus is put back, it's put back on Jesus that, well, Moses granted certificates of divorce. Divorce is a reality. Sometimes human relationships within marriage end. They did in the ancient world. They do in the modern world. But then Jesus turns the conversation, and as you pick up the verses there, if you've got the, the, the Bible in front of you, it's on 846, or if you've got your own Bible, good for you. Jesus says, but this is because of the hardness of your hearts that he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, I want you to note that if you go back to Genesis 2, which is what we read as our first lesson, and Karen did a wonderful job of reading it to us today, um, you notice that it only states it once, the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus inserts the second emphasis, doesn't he? 
so they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's as if he's putting an exclamation point on what's said. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes the the Pharisees and his disciples who are present with them, and he reminds them of this higher purpose, this higher understanding of sexuality, and he reminds them that it is focused on this passage from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Complementarity, Jesus says, he affirms that God made male and female. Men and women are not alike, but they are meant to be a complement to one another, and God brings them in union. And for that reason, their relationship has to be primary over other relationships. So you, you leave your father and mother, which I have to remind us of all the time, and, and cleave to your wife, because we now have two married children, um, and, and the two shall become one flesh. Now the question is, I'm going to walk back here and grab my water, because this subject is making my mouth really dry. Mm. The question is, is Jesus and is, the song, and is the writer of Genesis simply talking about the physical act of sexual union when he says the two shall become one flesh? Well, I don't believe he is in the least bit, and I think that Paul bears that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But just to, just to give you a perspective from the Old Testament scholarship, my Old Testament professor, Rod, uh, excuse me, Alan Ross, said that, that in fact what in the, was being expressed in the Hebrew here, this one fleshness, which I think is the key, is one fleshness means that, that the husband and wife in the physical act of sex are becoming spiritually united. There is a spiritual union that's taking place that is far greater than the actual act itself. In other words, the actual act points to something greater and has a spiritual reality that goes well beyond the physical act. Now let me try to explain that a little bit by encouraging you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. By the way, no one is sleeping at this point in the sermon, which is kind of a unique situation for me, but the topic's a little unique as well. Now I believe Paul bears this out. Let me, um, let me point to this, and, and, and first of all, let me say something to people who are single in the room, because um, I realize that it can seem as if, in the church in general, that if you're not married, you're sort of outside the circle. And we have single people in our congregation, and we want to have more single people in our congregation. It's important that we point this out. That, uh, here, here's what I want to say. Christianity was the first system, the first institution, the first uh, religion to recognize and elevate and value the place of a single person. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Rodney Stark, who's a, a well-known historian of the church, has said that that, that very fact, that, that widows or single people within Christian communities had a revolutionary place of respect and dignity within the community. In the ancient world, it was actually, uh, there was no place to be a single person, which is why the, in this passage from 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's going to refer to prostitutes because there were no single people. To be single was to have no place in the community whatsoever, but not within Christian community. 
To be a widow was to mean that you had a choice whether you wanted to remarry or not. To be a person who was unmarried was to be in a situation where that too could be a divine calling from God and, and a, a, a have purpose and place and respect and dignity. To be a divorced person in the church. Jesus, Paul will say, are you divorced? You don't have to remarry. You as a single person have value and place in this. The reason Jesus does this is because Jesus is showing that, and Paul is showing that, that married life and singleness are, 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 are just expressions, if you will, of something greater that they both point to. But it was revolutionary. You need to know that. In the ancient world, it was not acceptable to be single. This is why the book of Ruth, for instance, you know, Ruth, the whole thing is about the kinsman redeemer. Who's going to marry Ruth now that her, her husband's dead? And, and so they try to find the next of kin and who will take this responsibility? And so it, it's, it's this way. It's this, this drive towards, towards marriage. It's a very traditional view of family. Can I say that within traditional cultures, this is a pretty common uh, view that, uh, that, that, that marriage is the, is the backbone of our, our society. You hear evangelical preachers say that kind of thing all the time. It's this reminder that, we're, that uh, there's a need for the, you know, the, the marriage is an institution that must be upheld because it's the stability of the culture. And sociologists would agree, right, that that is in fact very true, that it is more stable for children to be raised in a home with two parents, a, husband, a, a father and a mother. And so, but Jesus, Paul, they elevate singleness to a place of respect and dignity and place and say it is perfectly all right to be a single person. Because of this greater vision of sexuality that Paul and the Lord Jesus are bringing to us, Continuing with the dry mouth this morning. Look at with me for a few minutes at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's found on page 850, no, 954 in the Bible. Um, I want to start with verse 13, which is actually 955. Paul says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And if you notice in your Bible, that's in quotations. And then if you jump down to chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman. Now, these are not things that Paul is advocating for, neither of these views. But they are examples that Paul is speaking into, into his cultural context, to say these are the two attitudes towards sexuality. On one side, you have the attitude of sexuality is simply an appetite. Now, modern scientific biology would say, yes, there's a drive within people to reproduce. And so, you know, the, the, you know that's, that's, that's just biology. And so, sex is seen just as simply an appetite. You need to eat, so you eat. You need to have sex, so you have sex. You, you know this cultural paradigm, I'm quite sure. You can't, you must be living under a rock if, if you don't know this is the attitude that the the world has. This is, it's simply biology, it's simply uh, an appetite. Know, however, that this is not a modern attitude. Because here's Paul in the first century dealing with it within the church and within the culture that he's living in. 
And Paul's saying, no, this is not the attitude. This is not the biblical approach. Now, if you were to, if, you know, politically, if we were to talk about, you know, the uh, liberal politics, um, takes a very sexist appetite approach, doesn't it? But now look at verse 7, verse 1 there. Um, it's, it's better that a man not even have sexual relationships with a woman. Well, this, this is the attitude that Paul encountered in Corinth with those who felt as if that, that sex is sort of a necessary evil, that it is bad and defiled, but it's needed because you've got to have procreation, you've got to have more people. And so it's sort of a, a necessary evil. And these two attitudes, I would suggest to you that pre-1960, American culture, that it was the prevalent view, right? Very, you know, it's like, you know, it's like the Dick Van Dyke show for the people under the age of 40. Um, Dick Van Dyke was a great actor, comedian. He and his wife, and, and they had a, like, a, like a TV show, uh, they slept in, in two twin beds. So as if to not give any impression that they ever engaged in a sexual relationship. It was just not even heard of, so revolutionary that in the 1960s all of a sudden couples and sitcoms were, were in the same bed, right? The Bob Newhart show, for instance. So I'm really dating myself now. But, <laughs> but, you know, but all of a sudden, so this was a very prevalent view. And oftentimes in the church we see these two, the, the, one of these two views, don't we? I mean, those of you who cringe that I'm even talking about sex want to go back to the it's better that you not even have sexual relations bad, it's evil, it's debased, we, it's a necessary evil, we shouldn't be talking about it in church. The others of you are probably, like most of us, um, inundated with this idea that sex is simply just a, a biological need, and so it's just an appetite, and, and so why are we making so much of a big deal about it? Paul, echoing the words of Jesus, Remember, going back to that passage in Mark 10, the two become one flesh. Paul also points to something greater in the sexual relationship. Not, an ap- not simply an appetite, not simply a necessary evil, but something greater. Look at how Paul begins to talk about sexuality. Verse 14. Well, actually, verse 13, right after that. The food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. That's not the way the Lord looks at us. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, Paul says. The Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up in his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of, the, of Christ and make them members with a pot prostitute? Remember, again, in the, in the ancient world, there were no single people, so prostitutes were common. If you were not married, the only option you had was to be a prostitute. Never, Paul says, or do you not know that, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? Well, wait a minute. If Paul's just talking about the physical act of sex, that is a nonsensical sentence. Don't you know that if you have sex with a prostitute, you have sex with a prostitute? Well, yeah, Paul, that would make complete sense, right? No, Paul is, not, Paul is not saying if you have sex with the person, you simply have sex, simply biology. Paul is saying you are uniting spiritually with that prostitute. You see, Paul is 
looking back to Jesus, who's looking back to Genesis to say that, that in fact, this union of husband and wife is more spiritual and more important than we can possibly imagine. Because, in fact, sex within marriage is meant to point to something greater, something that we will not understand until we enter into eternity. Mind-blowing. You know that John Paul II, the former Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, he began to write about this years and years and years ago. He called it the theology of the body. And it is vast. I mean, I think he like spent like 10 years preaching in the Vatican at, at Wednesday Chapel on this subject of theology of the body. I can't begin to do even a, a thumbnail expression of what, but I, I'm just touching on this idea that Paul is saying that, that, and what Jesus is saying is that it is about a spiritual union between a husband and wife that is a foretaste of something greater. But singleness also gets elevated because to be single, to be chaste, which implies that you're not having sex outside of marriage, is to be longing for that which will be experienced with the Lord in eternity. And that's how singleness and marriage can be elevated equally within Christian community because they're both pointing to something that is greater than them. Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. In other words, it's not meant for any sort of expression outside the marital relationship because it defames, it, it breaks down, it takes a precious gift that God has given us and uses it like a disposable razor. And that's why we have to take seriously Paul's admonition at the end of the verses, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside their body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Well, Paul, you're wrong. I mean, addictions are a sin against our own body. So he's not just simply talking about things that affect our body. Paul is saying we are doing spiritual damage to our soul, spiritually. My friend David Sanderfer, who Jose and Adrian know over here on, on my left, uh, used to do youth ministry, and he would, dis, he, would, he, would, he would talk about this one fleshness. He would take pieces of cardboard, he would glue them together, and then he would rip them apart. And you can imagine that once you rip the two pieces of the cardboard apart, that some of one piece of cardboard is transferred to the other and vice versa, and there's, it's messy. And then he would take those two pieces of used cardboard and he would press them up against other pieces of used cardboard and he would rip them off again. Or he would at least demonstrate this idea. And you get the sense that over time, we become fragmented, not just because we've engaged with the physical act, but because of the spiritual union that is created and broken, and recreated and rebroken over and over and over again. I believe with all my heart, and by the way, all Christian theologians, except for modern revisionist theologians, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, all agree that this is what Jesus is pointing to. 
that, that, there, that it, this one fleshness that Jesus makes emphasis on in Mark 10, Paul expands in 1 Corinthians 16, 6 and 7, and Genesis speaks about, is speaking about a spiritual union that is a foretaste. And I think we're, we're to guard our hearts. We're to guard our culture, and we're to speak truth into that culture, that, that we're taking something amazing and precious and something that's a foretaste of heaven, and we are using it like disposable goods to our own detriment. This is why, say all that to explain, this is why Jesus, when then pressed, going back to, to Mark chapter 10, when pressed about divorce, Jesus has to say, doesn't he? He has to say, if anyone um, divorces his wife or divorces his, her husband, um, they've committed adultery, right? Whoever divorces his wife, verse 10 or 11, and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband, she marries another and commits adultery. Yes, it, because... It, Jesus is recognizing that in this spiritual union that is formed in marriage, through sexual relationship, if it's broken and, and put back with another person, of course it's adultery. But I would caution us that this is not the only form of adultery. This is not the unpardonable sin. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if you look at a woman as to lust with her, for her, then you've committed adultery in your heart. So we're all guilty of adultery. And, and if you go back to the Old Testament prophets, they will say the very same thing, right? What is, what is often the language that the Old Testament prophets talk about? You have all been adulterous towards me, God says. I am to be your love, and yet you have given yourselves over and over and over to other things. You've worshipped them. You've given yourself to them. You've, you've poured out every bit of your energy for these other things, and you've abandoned me in your love. This is adultery, the prophets say. So there's none of us who's guilty. Jesus is not condemning divorced people. He's not condemning people who are divorced and remarried. He's simply pointing out that we, we enter lightly into any sexual relationship understanding how high the stakes are and how grand the vision is. I don't know how you put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We're living in a sexually broken place and time and it's only going to get worse. But we, as the community of Christ, just as Paul was speaking to in the first century, we're called to be a people who live peculiarly, who live differently. We don't hide our sexual sin, but we certainly don't celebrate it. We don't reject people who are divorced, divorced and remarried. We accept them. We uphold people who are single, and we uphold people who've entered into the covenant of marriage. There's a place for all. I just want to end with turning back a couple of pages to, in the Corinthians. 
I think it's important to end here. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, do you not know that the righteous, excuse me, the unrighteous, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that means gossips, nor swindlers, that means people who have underhanded business practices will inherit the kingdom of God. Man, that is quite a laundry list, right? Paul says these are all things that if that's, these are characteristics of your lives, these are not characteristics of the kingdom of God. These do not reflect the kingdom of God. Now, I would point out to you that if you're, uh, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party focuses on certain ones in this list, and the Republican Party tends to focus on other ones in this list to the exclusion of each other's lists. And yet Paul says all these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So just be aware of that, right? A higher loyalty Jesus is calling us to. But then, hear the grace. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. For all of us are adulterers. All of us are sexually broken in one way or another. All of us have fallen short of God's glory, but through Christ we can be washed, we can be sanctified, we can be justified. Amen? So, hard passage. But Jesus isn't trying to condemn anyone. He's trying to enlighten us to a greater understanding. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians, if you're married, act as if you're not married. If you're joyful, act as if you're sorrowful because these days are evil. Paul says, don't put all of your confidence in your human relationships. You know, don't, don't, don't think that, that marriage is the thing that you've got to have that's going to complete you because it's, it's, it's fallen. If you're married and you think, man, this marriage is hard, I wish I was single, be careful because being alone is hard. Put our eyes instead to the kingdom to come, to the perfection that God is calling us to in Christ and know that whether we're single or married, widowed or divorced, that, that our lives are meant to experience a foretaste of what Christ has planned for us. For those that are washed those that are sanctified, those that are justified. And Christ, who should be and is our greatest lover, who took his love to the cross and said, this is how much I love you. This is how committed to you I am. Offered himself for us. That we truly could be washed and sanctified and justified. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.